you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and you can find me throughout the week at my Facebook page, Evidence-Based Radio at Facebook, and I try and post uh, stories that aren't going to make it onto the show itself or things that are more visual, um, occasional just plain old adorable animal pictures um i try and make it fun um so do check it out there um just a programming note i will not be in town next week so it will be a repeat and um i won't be um, posting very much to facebook next week because i will be um somewhere where there isn't a steady internet connection um, which is, of course, a little bit <laughs> daunting every time I do it, but um, it's good to occasionally not be absolutely glued to the internet 24-7. So, um, yeah. Okay, well, let's start with tonight, because we are here, and there's lots of interesting and uh, slightly weird things to talk about. So I wanted to start with an update on the continuing saga of a drug company that we can all agree <laughs> is actually, for real, mainly interested in profit rather than helping people. So yet another story has emerged about the drug company Mylan and their shady dealings around the EpiPen, which is, of course, vital for many people with allergies to carry and have with them, you know, in order to avoid things like death from anaphylactic shock. So this is a pretty important um, medical device that Mylan has been pretty um, predatory about. And so, yeah. Um, so Stat News uh, reports that the company offered rebates in at least six states for Medicaid programs as long as those states put up roadblocks in the way for Medicaid patients who wanted to use a competitor product. Now, that sounds terrible, but apparently it is not, strictly speaking, illegal, nor is it apparently a the only uh, company who has come up with this idea. So other drunk, drug companies have engaged in similar practices. But the big difference here is that Mylan controls so much of the market for epinephrine auto-injectors, which is what EpiPen is, um, that the drug company Sanofi, uh, which previously marketed a competitor model to the EpiPen, has actually filed a suit accusing Mylan of violating antitrust laws. Oh, antitrust laws. <laughs> Something that we used to care about, but don't seem to anymore. But um, that that's a different show. <laughs> so this practice is similar to another dubious, but unfortunately possibly legal enterprise in which Mylan made similar deals with school districts, offering deep discounts as long as no competitor pens were available. Now, it's not at all clear if this lawsuit will be winnable by Sanofi, as part of what a judge will look at is, is this standard practice in the industry, which it does seem to slightly be uh, a fairly common thing that happens in the industry. Other companies do make deals with Medicaid purchasing pools, which can either call for their drugs to be exclusive to the preferred medicine list, which guides doctors on what they can prescribe or they can limit the number of competitors that can be listed. 
Now, this isn't to say that other medicines can't be prescribed. Medicaid must pay for any drug approved by the FDA, but it requires prior authorizations, which if you've ever dealt with them yourself through Medicaid or private insurance, you'll know are a royal pain and it involves extra paperwork and it takes time. And so it's just easier for people to say, I'll just go with the one that's on the approved list. But a huge issue here is that the drug, one of the drugs that could not be included if Mylan's EpiPen was the only one on the preferred list was even a generic version of the drug. So based on um, what your, I don't have Medicaid, so I don't know if they have a tiered system of copays, but I would imagine they do. And so if you can't get the generic version, your copay will be higher, obviously, um, as the actual consumer of the drug. And so uh, Stat News obtained a series of emails via a um, Freedom of Information Act type request um, between MyLand and employees at Magellan Insurance, which ran purchasing pools for Medicaid administration for several states. These emails do offer some substantiation to Sanofi's claim in the complaint that part of Mylan's monopolization strategy for EpiPen was exclusive dealing, noted Elizabeth McCluskey, a health law professor at the University of Toledo College of Law. And that is the second prong of the determination that will be used in any court findings, which is, of course, did Mylan break antitrust laws by signing exclusive contracts? Now, Stat News made very clear that they that the information does not include that they obtained does not include whether or not the states actually entered into these contracts or if they're still available. However, some of the circumstantial data sort of points to this being the case. So according to data from the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services, one of the states potentially involved, EpiPen and EpiPen Jr. made up 99.7% of all prescriptions for epinephrine autoinjectors for Medicaid patients in the state between May 1, 2005 and July 31, 2015. Now, I will note that there hasn't been a ton of competition in this field because Mylan has been so aggressive in pulling in the market share. So their market share has always been really huge for this. And it's part of the reason that Sanofi gave up and is now suing them. Um, So it's not entirely out of the realm of possibility that some of this is is organic due to the fact that um, Mylan already controlled the vast majority of the market share. But the problem is, is that it's a chicken and egg kind of situation that the courts will have to decide which is actually which. And so, again, it remains to be seen whether or not this particular sleazy deal uh, will come back to bite Mylan. But it is definitely another example of how there is a grain of truth to the idea that some pharmaceutical companies are in it just for profit. But... It actually has a very important caveat that is 
important to that narrative, which is that for all of its shady dealings, and trust me, they're shady and shameful and greedy. There is no getting around that. Um, but Mylan's product, the EpiPen, is known to be safe and effective. It does save lives as long as you can afford it. Every day across the country, people are saved with little to no side effects by this drug. So even though Mylan is undeniably greedy and immoral, in my opinion, they still know that making a product that works and doesn't harm people is the best way to make money. There's no reason for them to have a drug that doesn't work or that makes people sicker. A drug that works properly and doesn't have side effects is the best way to make money. And so even if you want to talk about greed and capitalism, which I'm happy to do any day of the week, um, that does not lead then to products that are not um, actually useful and doing the best that they can. So the second part of that narrative wherein pharmaceutical companies don't actually care about whether or not their products work, generally that is not true. Sure, they want to make as much money as possible, but they want to make as much money as possible with a product that works. So yeah, um, but again, we can all agree that my land is terrible they are terrible and they should feel bad. <laughs> okay, so let's switch gears and revisit another story that we've talked about before. This is our continuing uh, voyages through the uh, land of stories about space. Um, and this is about the possibility of a new ninth planet that might be orbiting the sun on some sort of weird, slightly off kilter or fairly off-kilter um, axis of rotation that is also extremely far away. And it's so far out that we can't really see it easily. And so it turns out that a new cluster of four outer solar system objects or uh, Kuiper Belt objects, so that's the area um, beyond the um, beyond the orbit of Neptune and Uranus that has all of the weird objects, including the dwarf planet Pluto and um, a bunch of other weird and interesting uh, Kuiper Belt objects. And so they found some new ones that actually, it turns out that the new cluster has been found that challenges the idea that there is another planet out there far out into the outer solar system. And so this group notes that we find no evidence of the orbit clustering needed for the Planet 9 hypothesis in our fully independent survey, says Corey Shankman, an astronomer at the University of Victoria in Canada and a member of the Outer Solar System Origins Survey, or the OSSOS which since 2013 has found more than 800 objects out near Neptune using the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope in Hawaii. Now, their work is soon to be published in the Astronomical Journal, but has already been published in Archive, uh, which is the pre-publishing platform for um, physics and astronomy uh, research. 
I think it's great work, and it's exciting to keep finding these, says Scott Shepard, an astronomer at the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., who was an early adopter of the idea that there could be a Planet Nine out there. However, he argues that three of the four objects do line up with a clustering effect that was the basis for the Planet Nine hypothesis, but that the fourth throws the entire set off kilter from that clustering. This, however, does not deter his enthusiasm for the ninth planet theory. We always expected that there would be some that don't fit in, he told the journal Science. The OSSOS team, however, suggests that the apparent clustering in their new objects is likely the result of bias in their survey. Due to various conditions which affect what part of the sky a telescope can see, including geography, weather, and brightness of various areas of the sky that they're attempting to survey, there is a certain amount of selection bias that goes into objects which can be viewed. So when the team ran a simulation that corrected for this bias effect, the apparent clustering, which suggested a Planet 9, disappeared, according to the OSSOS team um, member Michelle Bannister, who is an astronomer at Queen's University in Belfast. They also note that much of the initial details of the surveys, which found those original cluster of six objects that first really indicated um, that Planet Nine might be out there, remains unpublished, and therefore they're unable to note if such biases were present in that particular data set. And of course, um, wading into the fray of that um, is Mike Brown, who with his Caltech colleague, Constantin Batigan, uh, were the main early boosters of the Planet Nine theory. And so after hearing this, they are pretty much not impressed. Their main conclusion is that their observations are hopelessly biased. And it's true, he says. Um, This is Mike Brown speaking. Uh, But they then kind of make the leap of faith that everybody else's must be biased, too. He actually suggests that the various biases of the surveys would pretty much even out, making the clustering effect real. Now, it turns out that while astronomers are currently divided on the plate, the fate of Planet Nine, um, and this may seem like one of those things where uh, it's just going to be an insurmountable problem that will forever be moving back and forth, depending on the latest surveys and theories, it turns out that there's actually a fairly really easy way to solve all of this. Um, if Planet Nine exists and is indeed causing the clustering, there's a very specific orbit that it must be on, and this means that if an image is captured of the planet on this orbit, the case will be closed. Perhaps the most attractive thing about the Planet Nine hypothesis is that it has a well-defined observational resolution, Batkin uh, notes. It's either there or it's not. (laughs) And so there actually are currently several groups working on this very problem. So perhaps sometime in the near future, we will have proof positive, uh, a proof positive settlement to the question of planet nine when someone actually manages to take a actual picture of it. So we will definitely have to stay tuned for that and hope that that is something that is in the near future or not, (laughs) because then it will need the scientists will need to go and figure out what else is causing these weird uh 
objects to have these sort of clusterings, which may or may not be there. <laughs> and um, obviously, this is one of the sort of double-edged swords of science, where if you prove something, then that's cool, and now you know the thing, but now you know the thing, so you have to look for something else to find out. But if you prove that something isn't that thing, that means you get to keep trying to figure out what that thing is. So it's pretty fun. Um, but, you know, there's always new things to be discovered. And in fact, um, some of the stories I'm not going to get to tonight, um, one of my personal favorite uh, subjects is archaeology. Um, and so I read uh, a couple of stories this week, um, one about a... Um, a Central American or no, a South American, excuse me. Um, in Peru, they found this artificial mound that looks like a cinder cone volcano. Uh, the only problem is, is that there are no cinder cone vol volcanoes anywhere near where this artificial cinder cone volcano uh, artificial mound is located. So I don't know. Was it actually supposed to look like that or did it just end up looking like that ser serendipitously? They have no idea. Um, and they just opened it up and they found a staircase and the remains of what seems to have been a ceremonial space uh, in the top of it. And just cool things that, you know, are going to take a long time to figure out. And, you know, maybe that they never figure out exactly what was going on there. And also over in Egypt, they've just found some new hieroglyphics that are basically the equivalent of a billboard. Um, and so that's really cool. And they're from a period of time when hieroglyphics were actually being um, first solidified into a real language. And so it's from a really important time period. And it's also a really interesting thing to note because it sort of implies that because there was this giant billboard there that a lot of people would have been able to read it. Um, and so that's really cool. And that's something that's brand new in Egypt, which, you know, people have been staring at for a very, very long time. Um, and actually, one of the things that they found there, I think, um, was a uh, pictograph of a elephant with a smaller elephant inside of it which of course they um, interpret to mean that the elephant was pregnant and that is something that they don't see uh, very often either that's one of the very few depictions of an animal like that that they've seen so you know crazy new things that have just popped up in places that um, you know we've known about for ages and so there's always new things happening um there's always new discoveries to be made, which is why science is so fun um, and why I like to tell you about it every week. So let us talk about another very exciting uh, space typey story. And so I wanted to talk about a new computer program that's been helping the Curiosity rover on Mars to do more scientific work than before. So it turns out that for the last year, the rover has been using a new software system called Autonomous Exploration for Gathering Increased Science, or Aegis. <laughs> um, I love uh, especially like NASA anagrams, or um, not anagrams, but uh, I'm forgetting the word now, I'm sorry. Anyways, um, and so this program <laughs> uh, lets the rover control one of its instruments, the ChemCam, by itself when researchers aren't around. 
And so the ChemCam is an instrument that uses a laser to study the chemical composition of rocks. And so the laser will vaporize a small amount of the rock, and then the ChemCam analyzes the resulting gases. So between when the software was deployed in May 2016 and April 2017, the rover used its new autonomy to conduct 52 such readings as it moved into new locations. With, when combined with readings that were directly controlled by personnel at NASA, this helped increase the average number of laser firings from 256 per day to 327 per day. This means more overall data to help NASA scientists study what the surface of Mars is like today and what it used to be like in the past. And so a paper published this week in the journal Science Robotics details just how much help the new program has been. So it turns out that nowadays, whenever Curiosity moves into a new area of the Martian surface, even if it's just a few feet away from where it was before, the Aegis software autonomously scans the environment using the rover's cameras. It then identifies and take and ranks the best potential sites of bedrock to study with the KenCam, which then fires up the laser and performs its duties. And this is especially helpful for when the researchers are well, asleep. <laughs> and again, this might not seem like a big deal, but for the researchers it represents a real boon. The ChemCam has, cam has been fired more than 440,000 times at around 1,500 targets since August of 2012. And before Aegis, almost every one of those targets had to be hand-picked by a NASA scientist using a laborious process that involves communicating back and forth with a robot that's 150 million miles away, uh, which means that not only can it take up to 20 minutes for a signal to pass from Earth to Mars and then from Mars back to Earth, due to the Earth's rotation, Mars isn't even always able to be communicated with. Um, and so Aegis allows NASA to solve this problem by letting the rover do its own thing when communication is not happening and pack in more science gathering each day. So when Curiosity's operators send the rover's rover commands for a day of driving, they now include Aegis targeting sessions more than half the time. And so a lot of the time that Curiosity spends driving to a new location is done when the researchers are asleep or otherwise occupied. So if Aegis is scanning targets during that time, there's a fresh batch of data to be downloaded when they connect with the rover in the morning. You've got all this science time after each drive, and often you have a few hours of daylight left, but Earth has not yet seen this new place that the rover is in, Raymond Francis, lead author of the study, says. And there's no ability for people on Earth to make decisions about what to target. That decision has to be made on Mars, and now we can make it on Mars. So that makes us, that makes use of those hours that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to do these kinds of measurements. And so before Aegis, again, operators had a few options to maximize their time for science on driving days. Either do more work with the ChemCam in the morning and then driving later in the day, which often meant using more energy in order to keep the rover warm as the Martian daylight faded. Or they could tell the rover to shoot the laser at a particular angle, but not a particular spot once the rover reached the new area. 
This method only managed to work around 24% of the time. Using Aegis has increased that percentage to a whopping 93% of hits landing on the type of rocks that the scientists are actually trying to study. And the science team can equip different target profiles using the software so that the rover can look for new and different kinds of rocks as it moves about the Martian landscape. In addition, it's also helping the human operators on Earth to aim more precisely by using algorithms to refine the targeting of small features such as narrow veins of rock. Mostly, though, it's just being used to continue the science while the operators get some much-needed rest. And it's so successful that it's already being integrated into Curiosity's successor, the Mars 2020 rover. 2020 is a very ambitious mission with a long drive list of places that it's going to have to go and distances it's going to have to cover and samples to take. And we expect that, as a result, faster work on board and more autonomous science is probably going to be a big part of how we do that, Francis says. Not only is this new software helping NASA reach new goals in their Mars exploration, Francis thinks that Aegis could be the catalyst for a whole new generation of autonomous programs that will allow rovers, probes, and other spacecraft to work independently without needing to be guided by directions that can have agonizingly long latency periods due to the distances involved. An exciting example is the possibility of sending a lander to Venus. As I've noted before, Venus is pretty much a literal hellscape of radiation, acid clouds, intense heat and pressure, and other hostile forces that wreak havoc on electric, electronic machinery and pretty much anything else. The only landers that have gone there have had minutes of lifetimes, tens of minutes, and so you don't have a lot of time for cycling with Earth in the loop, uh, Francis notes. A program like Aegis could help the lander figure out the best things to study and start sending back information to Earth as soon as it landed, without needing to worry about signals coming to the lander from Earth. This would allow the maximum amount of science to be conducted before the lander inevitably failed. Now, of course, the the software won't be usurping the role of humans anytime soon. We certainly don't have a long-term goal of replacing the scientists, because this is a science and exploration mission, and it won't get far without its science team, he says. Aegis is making use of that time that otherwise couldn't have been used. And while I am a firm supporter of the idea that we should be sending robots and landers into space rather than humans, I agree wholeheartedly that we still need human scientists to be in charge of interpreting the data and ultimately doing the science that these kinds of autonomous programs allow them to do by helping gather additional data. So I definitely am wholeheartedly in support of both keeping real scientists doing this work and also using programs like Aegis to maximize the amount of work that rovers can do. Um, and I also could spend an entire uh, program uh, talking about why sending humans into space is a terrible idea, but I think I've done that enough. Um, I was actually having a whole conversation about it with someone recently. Um, but um, yeah, I think that it is time when we should instead take a short break for some PSAs and other 
um, fine messages. And then we will come back and we will talk about um, a new genetic engineering uh, breakthrough that is going to hopefully help with corn um, crops. So hang on for just a minute. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. This is Ruthie from Pedal People with a public service announcement. If you frequent downtown Northampton or Florence and you pass by the recycling and trash bins on the street, the public ones, I'm here to let you know that cups are not recyclable. No plastic cups, no paper cups, no styrofoam cups, no clear cups, red cups, blue cups, yellow cups, no insulated cups. Because if you put cups in the recycling bin, it means either I pick them out or someone at the sorting facility picks them out in Springfield, or it contaminates the whole load too much that the whole load is considered trash. Or if you can just bring your own cup all together and not have disposable cups, that'd be even better. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your cooperation. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors. 
shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly, and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. Hey, kids. It's Archie and Dave from Pot 3 Geekery. What are we doing, Dave? You're listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJ 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. And indeed you are. And you are also specifically listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And so now we are going to talk about a new breakthrough um, in genetic engineering. So the EPA has recently given the green light to four products that contain a new and exciting plant-incorporated protectant, or PIP, uh, called SmartStax Pro. And so a PIP is a gene that is inserted into a plant, which causes it to produce a specific pesticide, thus allowing the grower to forgo spraying or otherwise treating the plants. And so SmartStax Pro is specifically engineered to fight the corn rootworm, which has developed resistance to several conventional pesticides. We are using innovation and emerging technologies to solve problems like infestations of corn rootworm on our nation's corn crop, said EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt. Corn rootworm has been called the billion-dollar pest because it is so expensive for corn growers to control. Now, clearly, I have no love for Scott Pruitt um, as a human being or representative of our government in any way, shape, or form. Uh, (laughs) But I do think that this is a great step in our fight against pests, um, using genetic engineering to help farmers and consumers to get better crops. And so according to the USDA, um, according to USDA estimates, this one small pest can potentially cost corn growers in the U.S. actually, for real, over a billion dollars in terms of control costs and yield losses. Um, And so this is a great step in reducing um, that problem. And so the PIP itself is actually quite ingenious. It uses ribonucleic acid interference, or RNAi, a process of gene control that is naturally occurring in all living organisms. And this particular product works as a pesticide by silencing the activity of a gene critical to corn rootworm survival. And so by turning off the gene, the worm and only the worm is killed. And so the RNAi process is specific to this one type of pest. And so farmers who grow corn have been faced with an increase in resistance to Bt corn um, or to the um, resistance to Bt, which is a um, a fungus that is uh, the important parts of it have been incorporated into what's called Bt corn. 
Um, and that has been, um, the corn root rumor has been developing resistance to that. And so it's hoped that by combining the SmartStacks Pro with the already existing BT corn will help to stop the spread of BT resistance. And so, of course, BT corn is already commercially successful and has allowed, um, will allow the corn to produce the pesticide BT within the plant itself. Um, and this has already led to a huge reduction in the amount of pesticides that need to be applied externally to the crops. And of course, BT is the same fertilizer uh, or the same pesticide, I should say, not fertilizer, um, that organic uh <laughs> producers use so um you know and of course they'll argue that there's a difference between expressing it in the plant and throwing it onto the plant but um I don't think that that is true um but so they should actually also be worried about the spread of BT resistance um and so this smart stacks pro will be helpful for everyone um and it, it's really about trying to keep resistance from spreading um, to these kinds of pesticides so that we can continue to use them and not have to uh, go back to other uh, products that could be worse. Um, and so, or that have actually been shown to have real effects because um, BT corn is very much um, commercially available and has not shown any kind of issues. And also this new corn um, with the SmartStacks Pro, there's n absolutely no reason um, it will have zero impact on the nutritional value of the corn and will, will pose no risk to human health. Um, and so RNAi technology is very heavily regulated by the government. And so, first off, the Food and Drug Administration ensures that the food crop from crops containing RNAi is safe, as safe as its conventional counterpart. Um, two, the Department of Agriculture ensures there is no risk to agricultural agriculture from the use of the RNA, the RNAi. And third, the EPA ensures that the PIP can perform its intended function with a reasonable certainty of no harm to people from dietary and residential exposure and no unreasonable risks to the environment. And so these kinds of crops are regulated by all three departments, um, the FDA, the USDA, and the EPA. And so they've gone through a pretty rigorous testing um, set before they can even come to market. So the fact that they are coming to market now is pretty excellent. And of course, we can debate the idea of reasonable certainty um, as to the harm to people. Um, and this is where many activists who resist the use of transgenic crops uh, sort of stake their claim to arguments. But I would argue that everything in life is balanced on reasonable certainty of risks. There is no guarantee that anything is 100% safe. You can die by drinking too much water too fast. You can die in a freak accident. You can have many things that are otherwise safe occasionally not be. But these crops have been thoroughly tested and there is no scientific mechanism that would suggest that there would be any harm to humans when ingesting these foods. 
What they do suggest is that we can use cutting-edge technology to solve real problems of crop wastage that cost farmers and consumers time and money and lead to decreased yields, which, especially in other parts of the world, could lead to actual famine and deaths. And so the application of these technologies to areas of the world that rely on subsistence farming cannot be underestimated as being a goal for transgenic crops. This is something that I am very, very, very um, uh, adamant about and a bit of a crusader about is that um, the end goal, I believe that transgenic crops Um, should really be working towards and could be working towards if people let them be is to help people in countries where um, subsistence farming is still something that keeps them on the edge of poverty and on the edge of being able to survive and so it's one thing to live in America where um, for the most part people have access to food obviously In America, we have problems with that um, as far as homeless populations and um, underrepresented um, people who live below the poverty line. But even the people um, who live below the poverty line in America are often much better off than people who are in other countries where they have to grow their own food. They have to walk, um, you know, just to get clean, potable water. Again, of course, we have problems with that in this country. Um, And so, you know, being in a first world country isn't necessarily the end all and be all solution. But for a lot of people in this country, they are very comfortable. They can simply go to a supermarket, get all the food that they need. Um, They don't have to worry about anything. And they seem to be insistent upon manufacturing worry about things that can help other people. And um, it's definitely one of my hobby horses, as you can tell. Um, I pretty much refuse to buy anything um, that says that has a non-GMO label on it or that claims to be organic. Um, I'm pretty much uh, will not buy any of those things unless there is no alternative. Um, And unfortunately, I do feel like I am in the minority at this point. And it is extremely frustrating as someone who believes in uh, science-based thinking and um, science-based decision-making. But anyways, let's talk about something much less controversial. Let's talk about a couple of uh, questions that (laughs) um, I'm calling them sort of toddler questions. So... It turns out that researchers now have a pretty solid answer to an age-old question. Why are birds' eggs shaped the way they are? Now, of course, not all birds' eggs are shaped are shaped the same, but the general rule is that they are ovoid with one pointy end and one rounded end. Now, this is a question, again, that I suspect has been asked by toddlers uh, since time immemorial and also plagued great thinkers like the Greek philosopher Aristotle, Um, though I do like to colloquially refer to him as the greatest philosopher who was never right about anything. Um, But that's a tale for another day and also debatable. Um, But Aristotle's conjecture in this case uh, was that eggs that contained female embryos were pointier, which is, of course, not actually the case, um, 
But so what is the reason? Well, researchers decided to take a huge number of eggs and try to see what overall patterns they could find. So they used a database of 49,175 egg photographs that represented 1,400 species of living and extinct birds and compared two simple variables, their asymmetry, or how different the two ends are, and their ellipticity, or how long an oval the egg is. They also paid attention to the parent's nesting behavior, clutch size, diet, and flight ability. And so with all of this raw data, they created a uh, map or tree of the various correlations. And so traditional suggestions uh, that had sort of more scientific weight to them was that the egg is shaped that way to ensure that they don't roll too far away from the nest or to aid in the laying process. However, this research found that, in contrast to classic hypotheses, we discovered that flight may influence egg shape. Birds that are good flyers tend to lay asymmetric or elliptical eggs, says lead researcher Mary Caswell Stoddard from Princeton University. And so it turns out that it may be all about flying. The measure of wing length and efficacy was one that correlated most strongly with asymmetry and ellipticity. Ellipticity. It's a very hard word to say. <laughs> Variation across species in the size and shape of their eggs is not simply random, but is instead related to different ecology, particularly the extent to which each species is designed for strong and streamlined flight says researcher Joseph Tobias from Imperial College London. Now, the researchers suggest it's all about streamlining. The best flyers, which with the most streamlined bodies, have the most elongated eggs. And to prove the point of streamlining being key, penguins, who, in case you don't know, uh, don't particularly enjoy flying through the air, uh, but rather sort of fly through the water, and in fact actually thus need to really have streamlined bodies, also have elongated eggs. And so it turns out that egg shape variations are governed by the inner membrane rather than the shell itself, which means that adjusting the morphology of an egg is actually a fairly simple uh, process from an evolutionary standpoint. By adjusting two basic properties, changes in the thickness of the egg membrane as a function of location and a pressure jump across the membrane, we show that our model can produce a wide variety of egg shapes, encompassing the entire range of observations, says Harvard University researcher L. Mahandavan. And so it's important to note that the research does not point to why body shape um, for flight is uh, the, or that doesn't point to it as the direct cause of egg shape. There may, in fact, be other factors at work. Oftentimes, it's that some sort of third thing that they haven't looked at yet uh, is correlated with both of those things. And so it's that third thing that's what is causing the other two things. Um, and so you always have to be kind of refining your ideas about why that is. Um, but the researchers are especially interested in comparing the egg shapes of dinosaurs and birds um, along that sort of line when dinosaurs turned into birds to see what further insights they can determine. 
They know, for instance, that elongated eggs began with even more ancient reptiles than dinosaurs, while pointed eggs began to show up in some theropod dinosaurs toward the end of the uh, time of dinosaurs. And so there is still the interesting fact as well that some birds make their eggs longer while others employ a pointier egg, and some do both. Um, And so they're not really sure how those sort of decisions, um, not really decisions, but how those sort of evolutionary uh, solutions evolved. And um, so while this does suggest that some of the older uh, reasons are definitely wrong, it actually only sort of partially answers the question in the end of why bird eggs are shaped the way they are. Um, And so, yeah, I think that's pretty cool, though. And so on the subject of questions asked by toddlers, (laughs) apparently a few months ago, a Reddit user named Infernograve had a weird dream uh, which prompted him to ask the internet as you do these days uh, via the popular subreddit ask science a question and that question was do giraffes get struck by lightning more than any other animal or more often than other animals It's now the most popular question ever asked on that forum. And while I've never thought about it particularly, I think it's a pretty darn good question. (laughs) Unfortunately, answer is possibly, probably, but we can't actually know for sure because there's no observational data, only anecdotal. And there's no real good way to design a study that would adequately answer the question. Um, and I didn't want to talk about it too much, but unfortunately giraffes have other problems right now. Um, conflict in the area where, um, giraffes live and also just an increase in poaching due to that conflict, um, is really taking a toll on giraffes right now. Um, so, uh, they're in some pretty deep trouble, um, because of course everything is terrible (laughs) sometimes. um, Not everything is terrible. Lots of things are very lovely and wonderful. The Mars rover, very exciting and awesome that they're able to do all these great new things. Um, Definitely everything is not awful. Um, I don't want to put that out there. Um, I think that there are lots of great things going on. But let's get back to this sort of thought question, um, this sort of thought experiment, I should say. Um, And so despite the fact that a definitive answer cannot be arrived at, one can actually make an educated guess. So despite what you may have thought, lightning doesn't always strike the tallest object, but it is more likely to due to the fact that there is less distance between the point of origin of the lightning and the object relative to the ground. And so while researching a potential book, zoologist Darren Naish learned, for instance, that between 1996 and 1999, the Rhino and Lion Reserve near Krugersdorp, South Africa, had two of its three giraffes killed by lightning. The third animal, a juvenile, was also struck, actually, but survived. And in 2003, Betsy, the giraffe at Disney's Animal Kingdom in Florida, was also struck and killed by lightning in a first-of-its-kind event at the park. Um, But, of course, as we know, anecdotes don't equal science. But 
it turns out we have another uh, possible uh, reference point. And so it turns out that in 2011, University Putra in Malaysia, um, an electrical engineer uh, named Chandima Gomez, who works there, um, and who just so happens to be one of the world's foremost uh, authorities on lightning safety, <laughs> published a paper on animal lightning strikes that is considered rather definitive. And so he wrote, Animals with a large separation between their front and back feet are vulnerable to receive lightning injuries due to the dangerous potential differences that may build up between these feet in the event of nearby lightning. He also suggests that taller animals are more susceptible to potential side flashes when lightning rebounds after striking a nearby tree to hit the animal. And they might also be touching the tree when it is hit. Though, of course, I would assume that this would apply to a wide variety of other creatures who are mainly arboreal, um, which, of course, means that they live in trees. So if you're living in a tree and your tree gets struck by lightning, that's going to do you a lot of damage. Um, and so it turns out, though, that the real answer just comes down to we just don't know. Um, but uh, we do know a couple of other things. For instance, we know that deadly lightning strikes are very rare as a general rule. Um, and so despite the horror stories that I'm sure you've heard, that I've heard uh, over the years of terrible things happening, uh, you know, people using the phone and the lightning strike going up through the phone line and getting them and, um, you know, all of the stories of people who have had weird experiences uh, after being struck by lightning, even though they survived it's actually extremely rare. It's just because it's such a shocking and frightening thing um, that we sort of, whenever it happens, I think it gets amplified because, of course, lightning is one of those primordial forces. Um, and humans, I'm sure, have always had a pretty uh, advanced set of um, sort of... Uh, prohibitions against trying to go near lightning so I think that it's just kind of one of those things that we notice more when it happens but they, it is actually very rare um, so I wouldn't worry about that when it comes to giraffes and other animals despite the fact that it apparently does happen um, I think that might have just been a fluke with the uh, South African giraffes so anyways with that I will wrap up for another week. I will be back again, as I noted, in two weeks. Um, I will have a rebroadcast next week because I will be out of town. Um, but otherwise, I will see you in two weeks. And also, I will be um, not so much this next week, but as always, I do try and post on the Facebook during the week. So have a uh, great time. Please do stick around for Civil Politics coming up in just a moment.